The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 50. We will actually begin with the last verse of chapter 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the, name, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because the evil they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when, he spoke, when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived a hundred and ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Makar and the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of God for the people of God. Guys, good news and bad news. Good news. (laughs) Good news is, thank you, Zach, uh, healing is progressing Bad news is we're just starting from a worse spot than I thought we were. So uh, it is what it is. I found out this week I have a small pelvic fracture, which explains why it hurts so much to walk. And so now I don't get to walk for a few weeks, and so I'm going to preach from a stool again. So thanks for your uh, thoughts and prayers as I continue to recover from a bike accident. And uh, we come this morning to the end of the beginning, Uh, the end of the book of Genesis, the last chapter and to the end of this series in the life of Joseph that we've been uh, working our way through so far this semester. Um, And as we come to this chapter, uh, what we find, obviously, is that in the final chapter, the two main characters die. We read of the death of Jacob and of Joseph, the two people whose lives we've been following throughout this whole series and really throughout the second half of Genesis. And so, I want to think with you this morning a little bit about death, because it is something that is awaiting all of us. And I think it's fitting that we come to this chapter and to this theme uh, on a week in which, uh, as Michael prayed, we uh, have sort of lost one of our own fathers in the faith, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. Um, Tim is a pastor in New York City, has been for a long time. Uh, one of the most influential voices in American Christianity and really in global Christianity, and a a significant influence on the ministry vision and philosophy of Quorum Deo Church. Uh, Back in 2004, uh, I took a seminary class on church planting, and the professor said, hey, find everything that Redeemer Presbyterian Church has and go read it cover to cover. Uh, He always talked about this church in New York City called Redeemer that Uh, was pastored by this guy named Tim Keller. Uh, This was at a time before Tim Keller had written any of his books that many of us know him for. And so there were like PDFs and white papers and seminary lecture notes floating around on the internet. And it was sort of like you just emailed people and said, hey, do you have Tim's notes from preaching? Or, hey, do you have that paper on uh, such and such? And so I gathered a bunch of those resources and spent a whole semester just sort of reading them, um, thinking through them, allowing them to sort of spur some questions for me. And um, out of that really flowed a lot of the the DNA, the sort of core values and convictions um, of Quorum Deo Church. And so um, if you appreciate sort of how we think about ministry here, uh, if you're thankful for sort of gospel centrality, 
Um, if you appreciate the way we preach in terms of seeing Jesus as the center of the story, uh, if you appreciate the way that we think about living on mission in our city and trying to work for the good of the city, if you appreciate our commitment to church planting, a lot of those emphases are directly attributable to the influence of Tim Keller. And um, as most of you know, I had the honor earlier this year to be asked to join a little project called the, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, um, hosted by the Gospel Coalition, where we're just trying to sort of continue to innovate some of that work in thinking about how the gospel speaks to a post-Christian culture. And so uh, for me, uh, Tim Keller has been a significant influence and kind of a father in the faith and, and really for all of us here at Quorum Deo. And um, so yesterday morning I was reading some tributes that people had written. Uh, obviously Tim was a, a well-known figure and so there were tributes everywhere from the Gospel Coalition to the Dispatch to Christianity Today to the New York Times, to the New Yorker magazine. So I was reading a bunch of these things people had written and said about uh, Tim Keller's life and influence. Uh, and it got me thinking in a new way about my own death. Like, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to be remembered for? What kinds of things do I want to give myself to? And I want to invite you to ask some of those same questions this morning. I want you to imagine the day of your death. Let's imagine that like Jacob, like Joseph, like Tim Keller, let's imagine that you get to live a, a long life. That may not be what God has for you. It's not what he has for all of us. But if God graces you with that kind of life, I want you to imagine people gathering at your funeral to think about you, talk about you, remember you. Um, what kinds of things do you want them to say? What kinds of things do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to give your life to? What do you want your life to be about? Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, who's an author, says there are sort of three basic stages of Christian discipleship. Uh, stage one, he calls the struggle to get your life together. That's what all of us experience in our teens and 20s usually is just how do I get my life together? What should I be about? How do I establish a vision and a trajectory and a calling for my life? What is it? How do I just get my life in order? The second stage he talks about is the struggle to give your life away. This, you might think about this as sort of your, your most productive years, the years when work and family and friendships sort of require and ask a lot of you. And so how do we live in the struggle to give our lives away meaningfully to other people and to the world God's put us in? And then the final stage of discipleship, according to Rollheiser, is the struggle to give your death away. How do you prepare to die in a way that gives something to the world, that blesses others? I think part of how we can understand Genesis chapter 50 is that this is Jacob and Joseph giving their death away. They've come to the last moment of life, and what they're doing is they're giving away a lot of grace in their death. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says this about the death of these two patriarchs. It says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The author of Hebrews is telling us that one of the things Jacob and Joseph gave away at the end of their lives was their faith. Their final words were words of faith. Their final acts were acts of faith. They died looking ahead to what God had promised to do and living in a vital, real faith in what God was going to accomplish. And I want you to die in a similar way. And so really, the simple summary of the sermon this morning, the simple big idea comes down to this. I want to convince you of just one simple theme. There are two ways you can die. You can die looking back or you can die looking forward. Many, many people die looking back. The best things in life, the best days of life, the best accomplishments of life are all in the past. And that's what they have to look back to. But the Bible invites us to a different kind of life. The Bible invites all who trust in Jesus Christ to die looking forward to something yet to come, anticipating what God is yet to do. And so I want to think about the difference between dying looking back and dying looking forward. So let's look at Genesis 50 and explore how Jacob and Joseph died. Jacob, or Genesis chapter 50 begins with Jacob's funeral. There's this you know, long procession of Egyptian uh, people heading back to the promised land to bury Jacob. But I want to pick it up at the end of chapter 49 when we hear Jacob's sort of last words on his deathbed. Uh, Genesis 49 verse 29. Then he, Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury, we, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, as we initially read that, it sounds like he's looking back, doesn't it? I mean, here he is in Egypt and he's saying, hey, take me back there, back to that place where my fathers are buried, back to that place where I buried my wife. Take me back there. It sounds initially on a, on a first reading like Jacob is looking back. But the question we need to ask is, why does he want to be buried here? And when we ask that question, what we see is actually, Jacob's not looking back, he's looking forward. Because what is this piece of ground that he's asking to be buried in? It's the very first piece of property that the people of Israel owned in the promised land. If you go back to Genesis chapter 23, you can read about Abraham's purchase of this burying ground from the Hittites. And Abraham purchases this ground and buries his own wife there because God has promised to give Abraham this land. 
This is Abraham's act in faith to say, God's promised me this land, and so I'm going to buy a piece of property here, and I'm going to bury my wife here, and I'm going to be buried here. Entrust that. God's going to fulfill this promise. And see, Jacob at his death has the exact same hope and confidence. He says, take me back and bury me in that field, in that cave. Why? Because God has promised to give us this land. Jacob dies looking forward to what God has promised to do, but what is yet to be realized in his own life. He's looking ahead in faith to what God's going to do. Now look at Genesis chapter 50. So we, the, chapter 50 begins with this long journey to take Jacob back and honor his dying wish and bury him there. And then as soon as Jacob has been buried, we find this really interesting interaction between Joseph and the brothers, right? Verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God as for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's a fascinating text, isn't it? Once Jacob dies, the brother's guilt and fear of consequences is activated in a new way. Keep in mind, it's been 39 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. And yet they are still plagued with guilt and fearful of a sense of retribution. Why would they be afraid that maybe Joseph would seek vengeance? Well, I think they're afraid of that because they know the human heart. And you know your heart as well, right? I mean, vengeance, seeking to repay people for the evil they've done to us, is is a basic sinful human inclination. There's something in us that longs to get back at those who have wronged us. And so the brothers, though while Jacob is alive, they've experienced generosity and forgiveness from Joseph, they're fearful that maybe he's just been that way out of honor for his father. And now that the father has died, there's going to be a new kind of retribution coming. The brothers, notice, are still looking back at what they did and still plagued by guilt over it. And by the way, I think this is a fascinating commentary on how guilt works in the human soul, in our conscience, right? I mean, when you've really wronged someone, it's really hard to actually experience and feel forgiveness, You might feel like someone's been kind to you and offered some measure of peace, but to actually feel forgiven, to actually feel set free from the guilt and the condemnation and the shame, that's something different. Well, while they are looking back, notice Joseph is looking forward. He says to them, 
do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Notice his honesty about his brother's intentions. Hey, let's not pretend you weren't trying to hurt me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. While the brothers are looking back at what they have done in the past, Joseph is looking ahead to what God is now doing and will do through all of this. And he's realizing, hey, God is saving a people for himself. And because Joseph has a forward-looking vision of what God is going to do and actually is doing in the midst of the story, Joseph can say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, so don't fear. Don't be afraid. And now, at the end of the chapter, we read of the death of Joseph. Notice the sort of terse conclusion of the chapter. It tells us in verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice again which direction he's looking. God will visit you and bring you up. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so ends the book of Genesis. Now, what an odd request Joseph makes, right? Hey, Take my bones up from here when you go. Why does Joseph make that request? Well, I think two things are abundantly clear. Number one, he has confidence that God is going to visit his people and bring them back to the land. That's, he dies in full confidence that God's going to visit you and bring you back to the promised land. And second, in asking them to take his bones with them, what Joseph ensures is that future generations of the Hebrew people are going to die forward-looking as well. He makes sure that in what he asks them in his death, he gives them a reason to anticipate and look forward to what God will one day do. Because remember, God had said to Joseph, when Joseph went down to Egypt in chapter 46, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. So God has already confirmed to Jacob, you're going to go down to Egypt, I'm going to bring you back to the promised land again. And so Joseph dies looking forward, and he ensures that his descendants will be looking forward as well, waiting for the day that God will visit them and bring them out. And if you skip ahead a few chapters in your Bible to Exodus chapter 13, you learn that when Moses and the people leave Egypt, they take Joseph's bones with them as he requested. See, friends, there are two ways you can die. You can die looking back, or you can die looking forward. And, and listen, if there's no God, then your only hope is to die looking back. Because after all, death is the end. This life is all you get. And so that means all your best moments are behind you, 
Every hope you can possibly hope to achieve or reach is in the past, and there's nothing at the end to look forward to. And that's why many funerals can be so sad, is because many people in our world die only looking back. And so the only thing we have to say is, here's what they did in their life. Here's what they meant to us when they were alive. Here's some of the things they accomplished in their life. But because there's nothing to look forward to, there's no forward-looking vision and faith and hope, all we have is sadness. You've been to funerals like that, and it's a really sad experience. It's also the reason why our world tries to cram so much meaning and significance into every moment of your life. Listen, if this life is all there is, then everything you do has to be as awesome as it could possibly be. Like you've got to get all your meaning and significance now. So you have to have the best job you could possibly have, the best vacations you could possibly have, the best relationships you could possibly have, the best marriage and family you could possibly have, all the good things you could possibly hope for in life. You better get it all now. And so we live in a world that tries to cram every moment of life so full of meaning and significance that it can't help but leave us empty because there's no possible way that this life can be as full as we try to make it. But why do we do that? Because if there's no God, it better be all significant and meaningful now. See, there's a different way to live and there's a different way to die. You can die like Jacob and Joseph did, looking forward, looking ahead to a story that's still being written and to work that God is yet to do. So I want to convince you, that's how you should die. That's the kind of death the gospel makes possible, and that's the kind of life the gospel makes possible. Now, I've anticipated two objections you're probably having even now as we sit here, because I have them. The way I think about what your objections are is I just imagine what mine are if I were sitting where you're sitting, all right? And um, I'm a pretty skeptical person, and so I have a lot of objections to things that I say. Um, <laughs> so let me name what I think the two objections are to what I'm saying so far. Objection number one might be this. Okay, Bob, look, doesn't every religion look forward to some version of the afterlife? I mean, like many Eastern religions believe in a cycle of reincarnation. Um, radical Muslims believe God will reward them for jihad, for instance. What's, what's uniquely Christian about looking forward, doesn't every religion sort of look forward in some way? That's the first objection. The second objection is this, what if all this business about looking forward is really just wishful thinking? Okay, maybe Jacob and Joseph did die looking forward and maybe, you know, biblically minded people should die looking forward, but how do we know it's real? How do we know at the end of the day it's not just wishful thinking and making ourselves feel better about death? So let me try to answer each of those objections in turn from this text in Genesis. First, what's uniquely Christian about looking forward? Well, it's true, 
right? That many religions have a sense of something coming after death, that there's some kind of afterlife. But here's what you'll notice as you drill down into the hope that most of the world's religions offer. Ultimately, it's a hope in what you did in this life. The hope you have after death is tied to how good you were or weren't in this life. So if you asked most Eastern religions, what's the hope that you'll be reincarnated to a better state of existence than what you're in now? The answer is, well, if you, if you live rightly in this life. And if you ask most observant Muslims, what's the hope? Do you know for sure that you'll make it to paradise? They would say, well, of course, you can't know for sure. Only, only Allah knows for sure. You just live the best you can. The unique thing about Christianity is it's the only religion that can promise you a hopeful future based not on what you do, but on what someone else has done. All right, look again at the text in Genesis 50, verse 15, and I want you to notice the brothers. Notice again what the brothers say. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. In other words, they're looking forward in fear, anticipating what might happen if Joseph chooses not to be gracious to them. They're not sure of Joseph's forgiveness. They're, they're not actually at peace. They wonder, is maybe Joseph going to hold it against us and seek revenge and vengeance? I think it's interesting to notice the state of the brothers' souls and the state of Joseph's soul. They are fearful as they look ahead to what might happen. Joseph is confident and at peace as he looks ahead and as he looks back. See, here's what I think is interesting about what the brothers are expressing. Actually, isn't it kind of a, an excellent summary of how our hearts and our consciences often feel? I mean, like the brothers, deep down we know that we have sinned against one who has great power and authority. We need to be comforted. We need to be assured of forgiveness. We need to know that God is not going to pay us back for the evil that we've done. By saying to his brothers, am I in the place of God? Joseph acknowledges that ultimate justice belongs to God alone. What he says is, look, it's not mine to pay you back. Justice belongs to God. God is the one who judges our actions. God is the one who has the right to decide who's forgiven and who's not. Am I in the place of God? Joseph rightly, humbly recognizes that judgment belongs to God. But what Joseph doesn't know and what isn't clear at this point in redemptive history is how could God forgive these brothers for what they've done? Joseph has to chosen to overlook their offense, but how can we actually arrive at real justice for what's happened to someone like Joseph? Like he's really been wronged by his brothers. They really are guilty. They really feel their need and they really do need real forgiveness. How is God 
going to bring real justice in this situation without condemning the brothers. Well, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see more clearly how God will do that. God himself will take the stroke of justice in order to make forgiveness possible. It's the death of Jesus on the cross that can provide guilty sinners like the brothers and like you and like me full and free and total assurance of forgiveness so that we can confidently look forward with hope. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Jesus says to us, do not fear, for I am in the place of God, and I have forgiven you. I will provide for you. See, friends, we can die looking forward in certain hope of forgiveness because only in Christian faith, only because of what Jesus Christ has done in his life and death and resurrection, do we know that our future and our forgiveness is not achieved based on what we did or didn't do in this life, but rather what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's a whole different basis and and foundation for confidence and hope. Does every religion look forward in some way to the afterlife? Yes. Only Christianity gives us a way to look forward to it that's not based on how good we are or aren't in this life and gives us a way to look forward to it with assurance and confidence that we really can be forgiven even for the worst things we've done. All right, let's talk about the second objection. What if all this looking forward stuff is just wishful thinking? Isn't this just a way to make ourselves feel better about dying? Maybe. Could be, right? Let's acknowledge first the weight of the objection. It's a fair objection. But I want you to notice, it wasn't wishful thinking for Jacob and Joseph. Like, look again at Genesis 50, verse 24. Look what Joseph says. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die... But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So on his deathbed, Joseph expresses confidence that God will come and visit his people and bring them back to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Joseph is looking forward to in this moment is exactly what God actually did. Like what we know from history is that the Hebrew people occupied the land between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea from at least 1,000 BC until the Roman era. We know that from history. Like you can just go do the archaeological digs. You don't even have to read the Bible to know that happened. So the very thing Joseph is saying, God's going to do this, is the thing that history tells us actually happened. So for Jacob and Joseph, their hope and their faith is not wishful thinking. It's looking forward to actual real events that happened in history. And likewise, friends, Christian faith is not looking forward to some individual, personal afterlife. Me going to heaven when I die. Rather, Christian faith is looking forward to the culmination of history. 
The Christian faith is a perspective on what's actually happening in time and space and history. The Christian faith is about where history is headed. See, the Christian faith is this, because Jesus Christ actually lived and actually died and actually rose from the dead in real time and space and history, that means there is coming a real actual resurrection for the people of God. Like if Jesus didn't rise from the dead in time and space and history, then don't bother. You shouldn't even be here. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is in vain. It doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. Christian faith is not hope about some possible future. Christian faith is confidence that because Jesus Christ got out of the grave, there is an actual real resurrection coming. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. And I want you to see that's rooted in real, actual history, not wishful thinking. What faith looked like for Jacob and Joseph was embracing the promise that God made to them, that he was going to come and bring their people back into the promised land. What faith looks like for us is embracing the promise that God makes to us through his son, Jesus. The promise that the land anticipated and foreshadowed and looked forward to. What is that promise? Well, we find it in lots of places, but let's just look at one of them. In John chapter 14, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the promise Jesus makes is that he's going to prepare a place for his people and that what we can experience through faith in him is fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. To say it another way, the Christian hope is less about a where and more about a who. Whose presence will we dwell in? Whose fellowship will we enjoy? Who will we be with? Who will be the king of the kingdom that we are promised to inhabit? And what I want you to see is that Christian faith is a vision of history. It's an understanding that when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and take you there, he's not talking about some abstract ethereal existence. He's talking about the culmination of history. This is what actually is really happening in time and space and history, just as real as God delivered his people to a real land in the real Middle East. So Jesus is preparing for us a real place in a real kingdom with a real father and a real son and a real spirit in a real eternity. So friends, look, here's all I'm saying to you. There's two ways you can die. You can die looking back or you can die looking forward. And I want to remind you, I know this is discouraging to talk about, but every one of you is going to die. Like this is coming for all of us, right? All of us are going to have our moment like Jacob and like Joseph when our life has come to an end. And I want you to die looking forward. 
looking forward in hope, confident of what is to come, just like Jacob died and just like Joseph died. And just like the greatest, most hopeful Christians throughout history have always died, looking ahead with confidence because they know that the resurrection is sure and certain. And because they're confident that because Jesus rose from the dead, there is a real future coming for God's people. The book of Genesis ends looking forward. And likewise, your life is meant to end looking forward. Here's how the obituary for Tim Keller sent out from Redeemer Presbyterian Church read on Friday. It is with sadness that we share with you that our founder and friend, Timothy J. Keller, passed away this morning trusting in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. He died looking forward. And so can you, and so can I. Friends, that's the life you're meant to live, and that's the kind of death you're meant to die. And it's possible through faith and hope in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the end of the book of Genesis. We thank you for the example of Jacob and Joseph. We thank you for the ways that they died. But more importantly, we thank you for the hope and the promise that they point us to. So Father, as we sit here this morning in a culture that doesn't think much about death and that tries to cram all meaning and all significance and all fullness into the years we have here, would you awaken in us a new hope and a new faith and a new confidence in the future you are bringing? And would you bring us to real and vital trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who can say to us, as Joseph said to his brothers, do not fear, I will provide for you. Thank you that you have provided for us in Jesus. Help us take hope and comfort this morning in those words and in that promise. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.